the Slaughter and May podcast. Welcome to the second in our series of podcasts which explore the regulation of the digital landscape and the competing interests around data, big data and competition. It's clear to us that companies wanting to complete their digital transformations need to be ever more aware of the myriad of regulations and regulators in this area. In this podcast, Rob Sunrise speaks to Richard Sargent about the use, ownership and regulation of data in an increasingly digital world, what blockers and value drivers exist for businesses wanting to innovate in this area, and how issues around IP ownership and open data and the UK's national data strategy impact these discussions. Rob is head of Slaughter and Maze Technology Group and co-head of our global privacy practice, and Richard is both Chief Operating Officer of Faculty, a leading applied AI company, and a board member of the UK's Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, the body set up by UK government to advise on the governance of AI and data-driven technology. Hi, I'm Rob Sumroy, and this is the second in our Regulating Digital podcast series, where I get to chat with Richard Sargent, who is the COO of Faculty, the leading applied AI company and advisor to governments, and also a board member of the UK's Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, the independent advisor to UK government on all things data and AI. Richard will know, I think, from many years of us working together that here at Slaughter and May, we get quite passionate about this interface between technological advancement and regulatory development. If regulation can help innovation and the safe, fair implementation of technology, then we're all for it. But if regulation and laws stifle innovation or are too unclear and investors are discouraged from supporting the innovators, then we want to speak out and call out for better lawyering or better regulation. So first of all, Richard, I'd, I'd like to welcome you to this podcast and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. I particularly wanted to invite you uh, today because you're in perhaps a unique position in this industry, wearing two very important but different hats. As COO of faculty, you see the world through the eyes of the innovators, the algorithm designers, those realising the commercial value of data analytics. And as a board member of CDEI, you look through the prism of government, regulation, ethics, and, and see the importance of implementing a successful and coherent data strategy across the UK. So with that all in mind, I, I thought I'd ask you, if I could, Richard, with your faculty hat on, how, how would you describe the state of, of data analytics within the industry at the moment? You know, what, what's driving investment? What innovations have we seen in data, in AI, in a- analytics? And I suppose, importantly, for those looking at regulation, what are the blockers and the hurdles for businesses? Oh, well, thanks, Rob. It's great to be with you again. And I feel like I'm wearing three hats at the moment as a parent during lockdown and sort of striving for survival and the balance of, uh, of work and life. But as you say, faculty works with a range of different firms across sectors, you know, retail, financial services, utilities, engineering. So it's been really interesting for me to compare the patterns of adoption between sectors and uh, across the board, we've seen a clear move away from innovation theatre to a core business transformation. AI has been fashionable for uh, a long time, but frankly, it's a relief to see a lot of the work now grounded in the business value 
that it should deliver rather than uh, just just fashion. Uh, and I, I think the uh, the roadblock uh, that COVID has been uh, for uh, you know, many areas of life has actually not been so much in evidence when it comes to the use of of data it's it's perhaps been a spur to all of the the firms in in those different industries to make better use of of that data uh, and uh, and to take that data and apply it through uh, you know data analytics or or machine learning systems to solve business problems so uh, you know if i give you a couple of examples we've been closely involved in uh, using ai with rail firms to support uh, predictive analysis about issues like vegetation encroaching onto to railways it's a big cause of of delays safety concern too um, right the way through to automated detection of of online misinformation which is has been a, a key threat to uh, the uh, issues like you know getting vaccines uh, out for for covid um, all the way through to using machine learning to optimize the operations of, of search and rescue helicopters uh, so uh, an enormous variety of things. I, I I think that you asked about the you know uh, the the state of of data analytics uh, industry. I, I think the availability of data is is a key blocker um, uh, for for a lot of organisations. It, it it's not really the availability of data as as constrained or prescribed by data privacy data protection regulations uh, but it's it's often down to a lack of of confidence and clarity on the part of of data controllers about what they're allowed to do within the the scope of of those regulations uh, over and above the the technical complexities of bringing that together uh, and yeah we we've, we've seen for example during covid we've been working with the nhs to create a, a data store that brings together over 100 uh, different data sources that are all being collected and, and curated for a long time in different parts of the NHS, but it was an, as an archipelago rather than a, a, a centralized store, uh, which really limited the way in which that data can be used to improve uh, patient outcomes and, uh, and, and help hospitals operationally by things like ensuring that oxygen and ventilators and protected personal equipment goes to the places that need them most. And COVID has really created the urgency that has overcome perhaps the native reticence to share data within a, a lot of the firms that we have contact with. That's very interesting. I mean, you talk about COVID being a spur, and it'd be interesting to see whether that spur sort of has a long-term impact, because when we talk about availability of data being a blocker, I'm wondering also, I mean, partly with my IP hat on, whether this could be as a result also of too much focus sort of on ownership of data, you know, where companies, particularly having invested significant amounts in the capture of the data or its purchase or even the synthetic creation of data sets, they sort of feel the pressure to exert their ownership of that data, preventing sufficient access for others to access that data. You know, is there a perception or perhaps amongst investors in the sector that data is a really key value driver and therefore it must be protected on a closed basis, almost like source code in the traditional software development model 
which again can sort of prevent data sharing that would otherwise enable more innovation. It's a really interesting area because data is clearly an asset. There are millions and millions of pounds invested in the collection and curation of data. But data is often mistaken to be the same kind of fungible asset as gold or oil. And that's not true. So if you take you know half of the data set and move it to somewhere else, you, you don't necessarily take half of the value. The value of data is very contextual within the system that is actually using it. Now, there, there's truth in what you say. There could be a lot more innovation created, a lot more, uh, frankly, value uh, delivered to citizens and, and consumers if, in particular areas, there were more data sharing. I, I think this is true in both the public and the private sector. You know, the difficulty of accessing uh, data between government departments is is very high and uh, and really is is something that needs to be overcome but it's not the case that just by making some uh, data sets openly available then deterministically that transfers all of the value from from one place to another it's a, a slightly more complex ecology where it's the data together with the models and the the methodology and the integration with business processes that all comes together to create the value because it's it's that system that solves the problem uh, and that's where the value lies okay thank you and this sort of focus on data ownership or, or, or my focus on data ownership then leads me i suppose to think about whether there's a role or a need in this digital sector for more open data initiatives. I mean, you you talk there about opening up government data, and, and I know that that's a focus on, um, of, of for example, the, the, the draft UK data strategy, which maybe we'll come on to talk about in a little while. But if just looking at another example, the example of open banking, which of course derived from competition regulation, which enabled retail banking customers to get hold of their data and I think to incentivize innovators to break through market barriers and facilitate choice for consumers. So there's, there's plenty of speculation now about whether this model could be deployed by regulators across other markets. Um, actually, the, you know, the, the role of competition regulators in the data and digital sectors was, as you know, the topic of the first in this podcast series when my antitrust partner, Jordan Ellison spoke with Professor Ariel Ezrahi from Oxford University. But Richard, I'm interested to hear from your perspective whether you think this concept of open banking has been valuable from an AI perspective. So, you know, for example, has it led to a propagation of interesting, innovating businesses or business models in retail banking? And, and do you think there could be or should be more of a regulatory push to open up data particularly to enable the development of emerging technologies uh, and businesses? It's a really interesting area, Rob, and uh, open banking, particularly within the financial services industry, uh, perhaps relatively conservative uh, as an industry, it is likely to still take a while, still take a, a number of years to see the full fruits of, of this. But I do think it's been a really valuable initiative, not principally from an AI perspective, actually, but more generally from a commercial perspective of being able to 
build businesses by using those regulations to get access to uh, to customer data to allow switching uh, between uh, providers more easily for example uh, i know that a number of the challenger banks have have spoken warmly of it and actually i i think you talk of the application of that open banking uh, initiative to other areas i i think there's quite an interesting connection between the data privacy regulations that actually uh, allow access to personal data things like subject access uh, requests which uh, have been a little used and and somewhat valuable but often supply data in a very human readable way people give out pdfs with the you know the contents of emails or or records but open banking for me the key distinction is that it requires that firms make that data available in a machine readable way and at bulk at scale and with a much lower friction of access and so i i think actually there's a, an interesting connection between data privacy regulations and the availability of data perhaps by you know modernizing those subject access recommendations or, or, or regulations to provide machine readable information rather than just human readable information and that could be a spur to innovation but it's it's a very experimental area and it's certainly that's consistent with criticisms i know from across europe European Commission particularly uh, uh, as to how the GDPR perhaps and the, the DCEL process has failed to provide data in the way that maybe it was intended. Um, I mentioned the, the, the UK data strategy, which, as we know, was put out for consultation at the end of 2020. We also know that within the UK-EU Brexit deal that we've recently sealed, there's discussion around opening up government data and the benefits that that would bring. I'm interested, Richard, do you think that that this sort of opening up of data and particularly public data has been a, a key driver behind the UK government's uh, data strategy? You know, what else is driving the, the UK government to produce this data strategy at this time? I think that COVID has been a real spur to recognising the value of data. And when we say opening up, often people will hear publication of data sets on platforms like data.gov.uk but it's not actually that that has generated the value it's the internal connection of key operational data sets and sometimes they may be published too but the benefit of these data sets uh, when they are uh, operationally critical being connected across different services, different parts of, uh, of enterprises or, or, or governments that has really yielded uh, a huge amount of the value. And I, I think that the UK data strategy, one of the differences between the way that they've framed a lot of the aspirations in that document from, from previous initiatives is that it is ultimately grounded in the, the value of the, the purpose behind that data sharing it's it's less about the fact that as an article of faith uh, you know open data is a good thing and more about the very practical examples and illustrations of how by sharing data more freely you can generate value and with a moral purpose that everybody agrees with and and that moral purpose has often i think been 
occluded by the fact that data privacy and, and, uh, and data access regulations are suffused with process. Uh, you know, uh, privacy impact assessments and uh, uh, and other aspects of regulatory compliance. You know, I, I, I think of you know, examples where this has gone right. You know, the, for example, if you apply for a, a driving license and you can now use your passport photo to give you the ability not to have to, to send in new forms of, of pictures, it just strikes everybody as, as common sense. And, and why couldn't it happen? Why couldn't it have happened before? And then some areas where it goes wrong, like the Ofqual use of, of algorithms uh, to, to grade student papers. And that wasn't, in, in both cases, uh, the, the critical factor wasn't the processes, the, uh, the regulatory compliance uh, behind those applications. It was the moral purpose uh, and the validity of that that was the cause of either celebration or, or, uh, or distress. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you've taken us down this route, Richard, because you and I have spoken a number of times in the past that this relationship between privacy or the, the laws that are, you know, good meaning laws, they're inherently there to protect the individual and to provide choice for the individual. But perhaps when, when, when used in practice, they, they become more of a sort of a triumph of, triumph of, of form over substance. And it seems to me and, and, and others I've spoken to looking at, at the, the, the UK's draft data strategy, uh, and, and similar strategies coming out of Europe, that there may be potential conflicts in practice between, you know, uh, you know, some of these key value drivers that we've been discussing, like opening up availability of data and maximising the wider use of data, uh, you know, both within the public sector and, and private sector, but then a conflict between that and the privacy laws. I'm, I'm going to ask you, if I may, to swap your hats. Um, feel, feel free to keep your... Uh, homeschooling hat on at the same time but could I ask you to put your CDEI hat on now so you're on the board of of CDEI which is a you know really important advisor to UK government in this area and I'm interested maybe in in, in understanding about this relationship between privacy laws on the one hand and and another the you know the data strategy initiatives and how you see this playing out. Thanks Rob so CDEI has been a really interesting and and important uh, creation partly because it's it's cross sector it's specialist but also it looks to combine the advantages from the innovative use of data with the ethical necessity of appropriately protecting personal information and uh, and privacy and uh, that that balance has has come through in in a number of pieces of, of work that the the center has done uh, for example a, a report on fairness within algorithms and uh, i i think the key way in which progress is likely to be made in this space is not in the issuance of high level principles i I think when I last checked, there were over 50 sets of, of high-level principles about how AI should be used ethically, uh, and, and they all broadly correspond. But really, the, the way to make progress in, for example, the relationship between privacy laws and, and innovation is in the detail. It, it's in the, the specific ways in which algorithms can be made fair or the particular uh, guidance on, as GDPR says, uh, automated decisions ought to be explainable. Um, but 
it, it gives very little explanation of how. And organizations like the, the CDI and, and perhaps regulators too need, I think, to be really specific on uh, how these regulations can be put into practice because uh, where guidance is vague or, or, or too general, it can have a chilling effect on innovation, particularly if, if there's a the threat of, of regulatory fines for, for people that get that wrong. And I'm excited that in our next podcast in a few weeks' time, we're going to look even uh, in more depth at some of these issues around privacy. So, so I, I, I probably won't d- dig any deeper with you at this stage, but I, I appreciate your thoughts. So we're running out of time, sadly, but just finally, and acknowledging this, this is a very developing area, lots of potential legislation coming through, down the track at a UK and an EU level. What, Richard, what do you think from a longer term perspective um, are areas that may re- require legislating uh, to get people to act in a certain way? And, and what areas do you think could be sort of left to be driven by the market um, and, and, and accept that people will just behave in that way? I, I think that the detail really matters and, and likely the right treatment will will vary depending on which aspect of, of, of data innovation we're, we're talking about. I, I think yeah, the reason that GDPR is taken seriously as uh, as a law, as a regulation, uh, is because of the force and the penalties that, that back it. But also, I mean, they say that sunlight is a pretty good disinfectant. And I, I suspect that a large part of, of progress in this area is, is unlikely to come with new regulations so much as uh, more transparency on how data is actually being used, the purposes to which it is being put. And that will result in, in quite a lot of self-regulation. You know, infringement and, uh, and enforcement ought to be the exception uh, rather, than, rather than the rule. But uh, this is such a, an interesting and emerging area. And, and I think you know, together with uh, the, the geopolitical uh, uh, constraints and uh, and interests of you know some large technology platforms being American rather than European that adds another dimension of of complexity to how these regulations will be applied. Well, thank you, Richard. It has as always been a pleasure chatting with you through these myriad of interlocking themes. Um, you always bring a fascinating insight and multiple colours with your twin roles. So thank you. Uh, encourage all of you to join us again in a couple of weeks for the next and final podcast in this Regulating Digital series when members of the Slaughter and May data privacy team will be discussing whether regulation of data privacy is fit for purpose for the digital age and whether our regulators are doing enough to support and promote innovation in data businesses and how the landscape of data regulation may develop in the coming years. Um, so do please join us for that. Please Also mark a date in your diary for the morning of Thursday the 25th of February when we'll be hosting a WebEx panel of guests and experts to discuss all of these themes we've covered in this Regulating Digital series, including Richard, who I'm delighted will be joining us on that panel, along with experts in the field from the likes of Google, GSK, Brunswick. So that's Thursday 25th of February and you can register for the event on the Slaughter May website and it'll be available for download afterwards if you can't join us at the time. So Richard, I shall leave you to go off and be your homeschooling parents and uh, thank you all, thank you all for listening. 
For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.